guy's out this morning. He's attending the Richmond wedding in this weekend for their daughter, Julia. And he said, Ricky, would you mind if I take another day and celebrate our wedding anniversary? Who's going to say no to that, right? That's just sure. He said, well, teach him. He's always funny about this. He says, teach him whatever God strikes your heart. And so I said, okay. And I originally thought, well, I go back and I do a CBS lesson. And that would be just an easy way out because I'd already written it and I just deliver that. But God said to me, no, we're not doing it that way. I've got another message for you. So, Lord, I just pray that the message you've laid on my heart I can deliver to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, want, I decided to teach on God's bringing Israel out of Egypt and, to, and the decisions they made as they came to the border of the promised land. To get those decisions in perspective, we have to go back on a journey. So if you'll allow me to take you on a little bit of a journey, we'll get to the promised land, I promise you. How about that? Let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. <laughs> yeah, no way. Thus began the final process of God bringing to an end the Israelite 430-year stay in Egypt, a large part of it in slavery. Their slavery was about to come to, clo- to a close in a very dramatic way. The Lord said to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will, act, then I will multiply acts of judgment, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And God did what he said. He ushered in the plague of blood, which affected the streams, the canals, the ponds, the reservoirs, and they all turned to blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river stunk. Plague number one. And Pharaoh said, no. The second plague, the plague of frogs. There were, frog, fro- there were frogs everywhere, including Pharaoh's bed. Then there was the plague of gnats. All the dust in Egypt, all the dust in Egypt turned to gnats. The plague of flies. The houses were full of flies, but not in Goshen. The plague of livestock. The livestock will die, but no livestock of the Israelites will die. The plague of boils, festering boils on men and animals. The plague of hail, the worst hailstorm ever in Egypt. I kind of chuckle because we had a major hailstorm where I live. I was thinking, I'm going to talk about this plague, and sure enough, God delivers the hail to show me. The plague of locusts. They will cover the ground so that it may not be seen. They will devour all that you have left. Have you ever been in a locust infestation? They are everywhere. But here, you couldn't even see the ground. And Pharaoh said, no. The plague of darkness. No one can, can see anyone else for three days. Except in Goshen, they had light. Finally, with the last plague, the plague of the firstborn, Pharaoh said, Go. God told Moses to tell the Israelites, ask your Egyptian neighbors for gold and silver and clothes, and they will give them to you. And the Israelite nation not only marched out of Egypt a free nation, but also a very rich nation. God had allowed them to plunder Egypt. That should make anyone shout, there is no God like Jehovah. What a period of time. Can you imagine and grasp the magnitude of what God had done? The power of God was staggering. It was an epic time in the history of Israel. So what happens next? Moses leads the nation to the Red Sea, and who shows up but Pharaoh and his army? The people cried out and complained to Moses, You brought us out here to die. It would have been better for us to have served the Egyptians than to die here in the desert. The angel of the Lord moved between the two armies. Moses said, Don't be afraid. Stand firm, 
and you will see the deliverance the Lord, the Lord will bring you today. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Wow. Love these passages. You know the story. God tells Moses to raise his staff and the sea parts. God says to move on and the Israelites cross over on dry ground. Pharaoh's army chases them and is swallowed up by the closing sea and drowns. It is very important to remember that God fought the battle alone and he deserved all the glory. An atheist teacher was trying to belittle the Bible to his class of college students by saying that the crossing of the Red Sea by the Israelites was no miracle at all because they crossed at a place where the water was only six inches deep. A young man in the back of his class raised his hand and said, Praise God for the great miracle. And the teacher said, What miracle? And the young man said, God drowned the whole Egyptian army in only six inches of water. (laughs) You would have thought that seeing the mighty power of God through these wondrous signs and plagues in Egypt, watching him fight for Israel, parting the Red Sea, and drowning Pharaoh's armies would have completely cemented the Israelites' trust in God. Did it? No. They complained about water. God gave them all the water they needed. They complained about food. God gave them manna and quail, enough to feed them every single day. He gave them a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to lead their way. They came to Mount Sinai where God gave them his Ten Commandments to establish the relationship he wanted with them and the relationship he wanted them to have with each other. God was not only taking them out of Egypt, he was taking Egypt out of their hearts. And then Mount Sinai. I love this passage from Exodus 20. They saw and heard the evidences of God's majestic presence. And on the third day in the morning, there were thunders and lightnings and a dense cloud on the mountain and the, very sound, sound, and the sound of a very loud horn. All the people who were there were trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. You know, when I read that passage, I said, think about this. Come on, guys, come out of camp. I want to introduce you to God. How staggering must that have been to the people? For me, I just thought, well, let me introduce you. This is God. This is the Israelites. The power of that verse will will, will resonate with me for a long time. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Let me introduce you to the Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth. And they took their place at the lower end of the mountain. Now the Mount Sinai was completely covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And its smoke went up like a smoke of a great furnace, and the whole mountain shook greatly. When the sound of the horn grew louder and louder, Moses was speaking, and God was answering him with a voice. Again, the descriptive nature of Mount Sinai, Moses bringing his people out of the camp to meet God, is inspiring and indelible. After their time at Mount Sinai, the Israelites made their way three days, marched to Kadesh Barnea, which is on the, promise of the, uh, which is on the border of the Promised Land. When they arrived, the Israelites chose 12 spies to go in to the promised land. They explored the land for 40 days, and when they returned, they gave, as you probably know, two reports. One of the group of the 10 spies, one of the group from the 10 spies, and, and one from the group of 10 spies, and one group, I'm sorry, let me wind my mouth up here. <laughs> one from the group of 10 spies, and one from the two spies, Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb reported that the land was there for the taking. They were sure that God would trust them, that God could be trusted, and he would keep his promise. The ten spies reported that the land was filled with giants in fortified cities. 
It was impossible to take the land. Israel would suffer a great defeat. Not willing to trust God's promises, even after seeing all that he had done to bring them to this moment, they accepted the ten spies' reports, rejected Joshua and Caleb's, and made their way to make the worst cataclysmic, horrific decision they could make. They chose not to follow God, not to go into the promised land that God had prepared for them. It was a chilling day in the time for the nation of Israel. James Taylor has a song called Fire and Rain. Lord knows when the cold wind blows, it'll turn your head around. Well, this day turned their head around. Here's your neighbor question. I told you we'd get there. Why do you think the Israelites, even in the face of giants and fortified cities, didn't trust God to take the land he promised? Let me say it again. Why do you think the Israelites, even in the face of, gi- in the face of giants and fortified cities, didn't trust God to take the land he had promised? Take a few minutes, talk to your neighbor. Why do you think? <laughs> oh, good. I, I hope I have an answer that may... may Yeah, it's worth thinking of it. Okay, we're getting closer. What do you think? Anybody want to respond? Think? Did you hear that? Uh, Let's see if I can repeat it. It's it's much easier to look at things that are right in front of you than to look at how God is sovereign over all the things that He is. So they were something face to face that they were was beguiling them. Somebody else? Okay. Yeah, they haven't had a good record so far, had they? Moses had done everything, and now they had to do something, was what he's saying. Very insightful. Somebody else? Okay. Oh, sorry. How could I forget you on Good Buddy? Yes, I did. When I read the scripture over and over and scoured the commentary, five things came to me, and you've touched on one of them. The very first one was, they let fear rule the day. They said, we are like grasshoppers, they are like giants. The cities were fortified and large. They took their eyes off God and looked at the Goliaths of their day. And, I, and I, Early in my walk with God, Alan, I'm sure will smile, but we went, to, we, we went to a church and this guy came in and he's a good friend of ours. He was teaching that day. His name was Daniel Hollis. And he was teaching on David and Goliath. And, and uh, Daniel is about five feet, five inches tall, and, and even if he's wearing thick socks. I, <laughs> careful, careful. I remember Daniel saying, David was about my size and Goliath was nine feet, six inches. It looked like no contest. It looked like no contest from a man's perspective, but David was not looking at Goliath. David, he said, kept his eyes on God, who was standing right behind Goliath. And from that perspective, there was no contest. Goliath's doom was sure. And, it, and it, I love the scripture. The, you want to read a great battlefield cry, a great leadership, you should listen to the movie uh, Henry V. It's about Henry V in real life in his, in his battle agent court. He, he's, he gives a great cry. The men of England will, will, will regret they weren't here this day to fight with us. And really it's one of the most inspiring speeches, but I, I told you that to tell you that's not the most inspiring speech. David gave it, and let me read David's. Listen to this one. David said to the Philistine, You come with me with sword and spear and javelin, and I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day 
I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all that gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or the spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord, and he will give you into our hands. Amen. Go get him, David. That wasn't arrogance. It was David seeing God standing behind Goliath. The reason Israel turned away from the promised land was because they took their eyes off God. And with their eyes off God, and on the Goliaths of their day, it led them not to trust his promises, and fear seized the day. And with that failure, the Israelites paid a great price. It led them down a path of mistrust and questioning God's promises. And the consequence for that mistrust was a 40-year sentence to remain in the desert. Wow. Remembering is powerful. When we look back and remember what God has done, our trust in him grows stronger and stronger. Not clinging to those remembrances leads us down a path of sobering consequences. Now, as I prepared this part of my message, I decided to look back myself and, and, and think of what God has done in my life. Let me just give you a short abbreviated list here. A part of my life. How God brought Ellen and I in a troubled marriage to Colorado. How he brought us to a church in Evergreen. How he led us to a small group. How he led us to him to accept him as our Lord and Savior. How he restored our marriage. How he kept us in that nurturing church family environment for about 25 years. How he led us down the hill to Arvada and brought us to AWCC. How he blessed us with a wonderful church family. How he has blessed us with an amazing godly pastor. How he has led us to lead teams to Central and South America. How he gave us the blessing of seeing people on these mission teams give their lives to Christ. How he allowed us to watch the son of, to watch the son of our, one of our dearest friends fall in love with our pastor's daughter and we're blessed to watch them pledge their love to each other in a beautiful wedding ceremony. How he has blessed us with our children's marriages. How he has blessed us with grandchildren. The pathway has been amazing and miraculous. It may not be clouds of thunder and lightning, but it sure has struck my soul. God has been there at every turn, and I cling to these memories and cling to the Psalm 31, verses 14 and 15. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. I also cling to Psalm 23. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. A shepherd's rod is used for discipline, correction, and protection. I have needed all three and still do. The staff, of, the staff has a crook on it and is used to yank sheep at, out of bushes they have become entangled in. I am so thankful as I look back for the many, many times God has protected me, disciplined me, corrected me, and yanked me out of a lot of tangling bushes. Keep yanking, Lord. Your rod and your staff, they have comforted me, and, I have continuously drawn, and they have continuously drawn me closer to you. Why didn't they enter the promised land? They took their eyes off God. They let fear seize the day. They did not remember and cling to what God had done. And now the next one. They allowed doubt to sway their obedience. Doubt is one of Satan's most powerful tools. Remember his dialogue with Eve in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees of the, in the garden, but God did say we must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. 
and you, he, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The father of lies, as, God, as John calls him in his gospel, is an expert at injecting doubt. Can't you imagine him using the same, taxes, the same tactics as they looked over in the, as the Israelites looked in the promised land? Does God really want you to fight the giants? Does God really want you to attack fortified cities? Surely he understands how disastrous that would be. What is so, Doubt, doubt, doubt. What does Satan strive for? He wants us to doubt God's promises, which attacks our willingness to be obedient. When he puts doubt in our hearts, he opens the door for us to be disobedient. Is there any doubt in your mind that the Israelites, had the Israelites gone ahead and followed God's directions and been obedient, they would have taken the land? No. We sing a song in, in Ecuador. It goes, Mi Dios, tan, Mi Dios es tan fuerte, grande y poderoso, no hay nada que él no puede hacer. Which my God is so big and strong and so powerful, there's nothing that he can't do. And let me tell you, if they had gone in the land, there would have been nothing that they couldn't have done with God on their side. Fear, failure to remember, doubt. When they took their eyes off God, they allowed themselves to be swayed by emotionalism. You're probably wondering what that is. Let me define it for you. The Israelites said, if only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us out of the land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it have been better for us to return to Egypt? We are like grasshoppers. They are like giants. When emotionalism takes over, sound biblical reasoning is thrown out the door. You remember when Stephen was giving the talk in chapter 8 of Acts, talking to the Sanhedrin? He's saying, let me tell you what's, what's, what's wrong here. This is what your forefathers did to the prophets. You even killed, the son, even killed this, the Son of God. And what did they do? They put their hands over their ears, they began yelling, and they rushed Stephen, and they picked him up, and they stoned him. That's the emotionalism of that moment. They knew that the only way they could stop him from talking was to rally the people and cite anger and go take, go take Stephen. When Paul, in chapter 19 of Acts, and I love this part, Paul in Ephesus in chapter 19 of Acts, he said, Paul said, man-made gods are no gods at all. And when he said that, the people who were making silver trinkets, if you will, I shouldn't call them trinkets, silver trinkets, the business started to go down because nobody wanted to buy because why should they worship a silver trinket when Paul said, man-made gods are no god at all, gods at all. So what did they do? The businessmen got together and they began screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they began getting the crowd louder and louder until the whole city began to roar, great is the temple of Artemis. They had to get Paul out of town quickly, but what they did was they didn't want to hear Paul's logic. They wanted to be overwhelmed with the anger that had been incited by those people and, so, and restore their business. Emotionalism of the priests when Jesus was being crucified right before... Sorry, let me wind my mouth up again. When Pilate said, what would you have me do with Jesus? Chief priests had incited the crowd to say what? Crucify him. And so... Pilate was trying to find a way to do it because he didn't see any fault in the guy. But the crowd had been stirred up so much that this emotionalism, this anger, took over, and you know what happened next. Pilate gave in. 
Fear, failure to remember what God had done, doubt, emotionalism, and last but not least, when they took their eyes off God, they questioned God's plans. Looking into the promised land, they lamented that God had gotten their entry into the land all wrong. This is the gospel according to Rick. What, do you, what, was, what they wanted them to do was to send an angel in and clear the way. Why should I do it? Send an angel in and have him take over the land. I love it when Jesus, uh, I, I should say, it's the same principle in Matthew 16 when Peter says to Jesus, uh, after Jesus has said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer and die. What is Peter's reaction? Never, Lord, get behind me, Satan. I'm sorry. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in, th- in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You know the story about Nahum and Elisha? You probably did in Second in Kings chapter 5. Elisha tells Naaman to wash seven times in the Jordan to heal his, himself from his leprosy. What was Naaman's response? Well, not only, what, what is that? Yes! They're, they're, why would I go do that? There are better rivers in my own country. Began arguing right away. I laughingly, my, my, my grandson, who I love dearly, he is forever questioning when I say something. He goes, why? Why? And I go, because it's important. I go do it. But, but why? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Isaiah 55, 8 says, neither are your ways my ways. We need to be like the blind man in chapter 9. Remember what happened? Jesus put mud on his eyes, and he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So can you imagine him saying, okay, but I, I can't see, and he's, now he's walking down the street like this, asking people probably, where is this pool of Siloam, and finally he finds it. He didn't object at all. He didn't object at all. He said he just did it, right? He trusted Jesus to put, uh, and, and didn't ask why. If it had been me, honestly, I would have said, why can't I be like the blind man that you gave back his sight instantly? Why couldn't you just say, uh, it, he, I'm sure he didn't know the story, but when Jesus was coming into Jericho before he met Zacchaeus, there was a blind man there, and he said, who's coming? He said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, Jesus. Jesus, he kept getting louder and louder. They kept saying, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. He kept getting louder and louder. And so Jesus said, walked over to him and said, what do you want? He said, I would like to see again. He went, receive your sight. Right there on the spot. Yet the blind man in chapter 9 has to put mud in his eyes, walk, I don't know how many blocks, wash his face in to get his sight. Now, I'm not going to answer why Jesus does that because only he knows. But he must have known something about the blind man. I, I, I speculate here. He must have known something about the blind man that the mud and the washing in the pool of Siloam had an, an ulterior motive as well because that's the kind of God we have. We need to trust him. When he says do something, we need to do it, not ask him, could you do it another way? God's plans are perfect. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Remember not to lean on your own insight. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. One of the first five scriptures I learned as a new Christian. It is true. If you trust in the Lord with all your heart, he will lead you straight. I love Psalm, Proverbs 19.21, one of my favorite Proverbs verses. It says, many are the plans of a man's heart, but it is the purpose of the Lord that prevails. So what's the take-home message? Keep your eyes focused on God. Don't let fear rule the day. Trust him. Keep your eyes on God. Remember that what he has done and trust will abound. Keep your eyes focused on God. Don't let doubt 
sway your obedience. Keep your eyes focused on God. His ways are perfect. He can be trusted. Worship team, if you come up, I'm going to finish with a story. But the worship team can come up. I want to finish with an example from the pilgrims. They had a deep-rooted trust in God. They kept their eyes on God. On December 21, 1620, the Mayflower dropped anchor in Plymouth Bay with Captain Christopher Jones at her helm. It had been a long, grueling voyage, taking the 66 days to make the perilous crossing. There had been disease, anxiety, and childbirth among the 102 courageous passengers. Furthermore, they arrived on the New England shore during a hard winter, which ultimately claimed half the number. However, when spring came, the captain of the Mayflower offered free passage to anyone desiring to return. Not a single person accepted of the survivors who had signed the famous Mayflower Compact, beginning with the words, In the name of God, Amen and Amen. They had come to this wilderness to carve out a better way of life. Faith prompted their voyage. Faith sustained them. And their religious convictions compelled them to raise their voices in praise to God. Their hardship, sacrifice, devotion, concept of government, and vigorous religion all remind us of those in the Bible who sought a country whose builder and maker was God. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to keep our eyes on God. He is trustworthy. We can trust his promises. We can trust his faithfulness. We can march forward into the future repeating what the pilgrims said in the name of God. Amen and amen. Let's sing the doxology with me, would you please? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. When we were in Ecuador, and the people of Ecuador in this particular city were feeding us dinner, we sang the doxology one night. And the next night when we were back for dinner, they said, would you please sing the doxology again? And the next night we came back, would you please sing the doxology again? We sang it every night we were there. And it was the same harmony that I hear tonight. <sighs> Makes me thank God. When he's in our hearts, the way we are connected is a, is a way that people who don't know God will never understand. But we do. That harmony comes from God. And the people who didn't speak any English could hear it in another language or responding to that message as well. It was a, it was a touching moment. And the people said, Amen.